You're listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. And not only am I glad you're with me, but you're going to be glad too, because today I've got Doomberg. Uh, in case you're not familiar with Doomberg, it's an analytical group who I think it's safe to say have taken the investment world by storm over the last year, year and a half when they first started publishing. I mean, they were on top of both the energy and food crisis with in-depth analysis. And I think that was so sorely needed. I mean, in a world of virtue signaling and superficiality, Doomberg provides much needed depth, factual information, and a real skill in communicating it. I only wish our leaders would listen in. And of course, much of this week was all about interest rates with increased rates in both Canada and Europe. Rob Levy and I are going to discuss the overall economic and financial impact, but I've asked Ozzy to dig deeper into what the impact on real estate will be, and I think it's going to be significant. And this week, for the first time, I'm holding off on the shocking stat of the week. Instead, I've got something I'm calling the remarkable stat of the week. So stay with us. Uh, plus, don't miss the Goofy Award. I mean, this may be the most ridiculous COVID restriction to date. And you know, there's no shortage of competition, but I think we've got the winner. But first, one aspect of the current energy crisis that to me is abundantly clear is that our politicians, uh, many members in the public, maybe most, along with most in the media, take our access to energy for granted. I mean, shortages this time last year we were talking about in UK and China, blackouts in Texas and California, and of course the current energy crisis in Germany and the rest of Europe, I think make it pretty clear that this has major and even fatal consequences. I mean, for all the talk about the transition to renewable energy, none of it was informed by essential guidelines like, hey, how about availability, reliability, and affordability? In fact, there was no serious plans. There's been no serious plans whatsoever. And I think I can add personally that pointing that out was never popular with many people. Several times in the past few years, I tried to raise our consciousness by inviting people, hey, try living without energy for a day. I mean, no electricity means, hey, no cell phone, no computer, no TV, you know, at times with the, depending on how you're heating, but no hot water and without fossil fuels, really, there's no food or manufactured products. I mean, the changes to our lives are simply too long to list, but somehow the importance of energy's availability and reliability has been overlooked. More than that, though, the shutting down of oil and natural gas production and uh, they were def and delivery, by the way, which was cheered with virtually no thought of the consequences. And now we're living them. We got shortages of fertilizer, diesel, gasoline prices through the roof, all of that stuff. And of course, fears about what's going to happen this winter when some people can't afford to heat their homes. And an inability, some say refusal, to come to the European Union's aid. All of that's part of it. The consequences are obvious. But my point is this, a little different. Yeah, it's important to note, but what else are we taking for granted that I think we're going to regret? Well, two areas just jumped to mind for me. It's healthcare and the economy. And I'll start with healthcare. For years, we ignored warnings about the sustainability of the whole system. I mean, think of our unrealistic mantra. We were saying unlimited access with limited budgets, made worse by an aging population. That simply can't work. We've ignored numerous reports on Canada's poor ranking when it comes uh, to other developed countries when it comes to access to time, uh, timely access. We let special interest groups, along with politicians, block change in the healthcare system. And that's despite horrific statistics, like 11,581 patients in Canada died in 2020-21 waiting for surgery. I mean, come on. The point is that most Canadians took access for healthcare for granted. 
But a just release Angus Reid poll says, hey, maybe that's changing. We've got 9 million Canadians in the poll say they've experienced chronic difficulties in accessing health care. BC, Saskatchewan, Ontario, four Atlantic provinces, it's worse. More than 60% said they face challenges seeking care. I mean, I wonder how bad it will have to get, though, before the majority of Canadians stop taking access to health care for granted and demand change. And what about economic growth? Well, despite the fact that a strong and growing economy is the foundation of our standard of living, along with a government's ability to deliver a huge array of services, maybe health care, education, roads, police, yet a majority of Canadians don't worry when key components of economic prosperity like Capital investment, which has been declining. Productivity declines. More than that, the majority of us show no concern when politicians actually work to derail economic growth with recommendations about excessive regulation and uh, taxation and with a helping hand of many of them denigrating success. Come on, most of us didn't bat an eye when hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of billions of dollars in economic activity have been lost in the energy industry or with things like interprovincial trade barriers. Now, I know many will disagree, but you know what? That just makes my point. They take the economy for granted as if growth appears by magic. Hey, they clearly did that in Europe with their climate policies, and now their standard of living is taking a hit. Instead of growth, by the way, we opted to maintain our collective standard of living by borrowing record amounts of money, collectively through government and individually. And I'm afraid we're about to find out firsthand that there are consequences to that. See, my big worry is that we'll be hit by serious consequences before our casual attitudes change. But for many, that will be too late because just like what we're seeing from the fallout from the energy crisis, the lack of access to timely care, taking economic growth for granted, actually working against it is going to hit the most vulnerable first. As I say, we've got a great show planned for you, but I just thought I'd bring this up to you, that I noticed that uh, we've got a free e-newsletter that many people, well, have subscribed to, but many more could take advantage of it. And it's all free, by the way. It comes out about twice a week. And all you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. There's a button there. As I say, it's free. Daily updates of, I think, interesting facts and quotes and content. And as I say, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you'll see other changes there that we've made there, I think, that make it better. It's the easiest way, by the way, to quickly access the current program. And by the way, you'll also hear today, uh, we have sponsors advertising really for the first time this month. But I want you to know this. Uh, these are people, are, are companies that my team knows directly. And if what they're offering is of interest, well, we'll hope you take a moment to learn more or contact them directly. But the big thing is, hey, if you've got an, uh, if your organization would like to look at sponsoring Money Talks, our podcast here, well, just drop us a line at info at mikesmoneytalks.ca. I've got Grant and his team will respond to all of that. But in the meantime, I appreciate the support and I've got a great show for you today. So stay with us. Time now for the quote of the week, which comes from Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo, who instead of kind of the usual political pablum, I think he spells out the seriousness of the energy crisis in Europe in quotes. A few weeks like this and the European economy will just go into a full stop. Recovering from that is going to be much more complicated than intervening in the gas markets today. The risk of that is deindustrialization and severe risk of fundamental social unrest. 
end of quote. But he goes on to say, what you're seeing today is a massive drainage of prosperity out of the European Union, end of quote. Well, you know what, by the way, I think he's got the consequences of the energy crisis right, but let me be clear, that's a long way from actually addressing the problem in an effective way. See, I think far too many, uh, for far too many, what's been happening in the energy market has not been a reason to actually rethink their approach. I mean, I find it amazing to see some leaders actually double down on the very policies that's created things like sky high energy prices, uh, forced increased coal production and consumption, and forecasts of shortages this winter. Now, there are exceptions, as I'm about to talk with Doomberg about, like the new UK Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Well, at least she's recognized the need for more fossil fuels and nuclear power. In my interview with Doomberg, as I say, coming up next, we'll explore the energy crisis, food shortages, and the political response, which in most instances are going to make the problems even worse. I'll tell you, if there's one thing I know is that I love quality research. And, and you know what? There's a real need for it, and especially in some important areas. So I want to flash back just for a moment, uh, back to May of 2021, looking on Substack and looking at Doomberg and going, oh, what are these guys all about? Well, I'll tell you what they're all about and what they've proven to be about is understanding and giving us some uh, early warnings about supply chain problems, for example. Uh, but for me, it was when they started to talk about food and fertilizer and the relationship uh, with an expertise, though, that I think was sorely needed. Uh, they've been talking about energy, uh, water crisis. Uh, all of that was early days uh, before the sort of mainstream analytical com community, let alone the mainstream media, caught up to them. Well, that's why I'm so pleased to have Doomberg on with me today. We've been looking forward to this for months uh, to get him on with us. Doomberg, thanks for finding time. Hey, Michael, really fantastic to be here. Big fans of your show. And um, like you said, this has been long in the making, and I know it's going to be a robust discussion that I, I personally am very much looking forward to having. Well, I mean, what, every day there's more stuff happening. And by the way, I'll tell people, I'll give the address, uh, you know, you can find Doomberg also on Twitter and they, he keeps up to date, the group, the team keeps up to date on all that's happening. And there is so much happening. And uh, I'm going to start with energy because, uh, Obviously, that's been a big topic in food. I'm getting to that too. Don't worry, everyone. Uh, and fertilizer and the challenges, they're so interrelated. But, you know, I look at the changes already. You look at what's happened in the UK. I thought it was the first glimmer of hope actually coming out of the UK with the new prime minister actually talking increasing supply, talking nuclear power. And so I thought I'd start with an optimistic note. What did you take of that? I think, you know, we get asked all the time from our subscribers and, and our clients in our consulting business, um, what are the milestones that we're looking for for a turning point? And today is about as close as we could think of one. You know, there's a few other milestones like restarting the large natural gas field um, in the Netherlands or perhaps Germany getting serious about its nuclear power plants and not only um, postponing the scheduled close of their three remaining reactors, but bringing it back online, the three that they have turned off um, just at the end of last year. But I think um, the new prime minister's uh, message today and tone, um, it, it was sort of, um, look, there's some aspects of her proposals that we think are suboptimal, but are probably necessary from a political expediency lens. But by and large, she's taking an all of the above approach for energy production, natural gas, um, both offshore and um, fracking, um, nuclear, proposing to have 25% of the 
of the country's nuclear power come uh, electricity come from nuclear power <clears throat> in a short period of time. Uh, the, the, even if many of these things are opposed and don't come to pass, I think the optics themselves and the sort of the turning of the conversation in the right direction shouldn't be underestimated. I still think the continent of Europe has a long ways to go before they confront reality. Um, having said that, things are moving at such a pace that we it might be weeks instead of months or might be months instead of years. Um, but um, I concur with your assessment. We put out a tweet to this effect earlier this morning. This announcement out of the UK um, could very well be a turning point in the crisis. We certainly hope it is. Let me back up for a second and just get your take on, I, I've been flabbergasted by how many bad decisions have been made. I've been flabbergasted by the, uh, you mentioned the word reality. And and I'm seriously, I, I there's one thing to have a different ideological bent. It's quite something else to not understand that wind and solar are intermittent energy. You know, I mean, that's we're so fundamental in the mistakes. How did we get into this mess? You know, we, um, it's a great question, first of all. Um, and it's something we have been writing about for a long time, as you mentioned in your introduction, which was very kind. We wrote a piece in the fall of last year, I believe, called um, Coking Coal Has a Branding Problem, where we, um, we, we relayed this amazing interaction between then uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the you know, climate editor of the BBC, where they were arguing about whether uh, a certain coal mine should be authorized. And it's very clear that neither of them knew that this was a coking coal mine instead of a thermal coal mine. And they were discussing about the impacts on the electricity grid of whether or not this mine would go forward. And I'm sure your audience knows coking coal is used to make steel. It's not burned to make electricity. And this whole affair got blown up in the media and um, not we couldn't find anywhere where people pointed out this, this absurdity that um, the prime minister of England or the prime minister of the UK um, and, and the climate editor of the BBC had no idea what they were talking about uh, on such a simple matter as a difference between coking coal and thermal coal. And, and given our extensive background in the commodity sector, you know, from industry with real practical experience running P&Ls in the energy sector, understanding the investment time horizons and what's truly needed to power the economy and to ensure uh, a healthy standard of living for the humans in our society, uh, we're just sort of flabbergasted by that. And so I think the genesis of this is legitimately... Um, we have grown too comfortable um, in our society. We've become too distant from the people and the technologies that actually power it. And we've had the luxury of, of bathing in platitudes um, because in the past two decades, we've lived in a, a period of relative energy excess. And, and with sort of the COVID shutdown and the, 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 the bankruptcies and the shale patch and, and the lack of investment because of the ESG defund movement, um, we are now living in a period of, of energy um, shortages. And, and the luxuries of such platitudes are just um, unacceptable now. We need to get serious again. And, and as we just said, I think the new prime minister's um, um, speech this morning uh, was a very positive sign in that regard. And, and nobody would like uh, more than us to have this problem be resolved uh, in a positive way. One of the things uh, you've been writing about and focusing on when it comes to the energy file is that, you know, this coming winter uh, may be the pivotal event of, of in decades, you know, uh, the last several decades and going forward. I mean, how they actually handle the energy shortages. And uh, you were mentioning, OK, so that if that's a at least a check mark against the UK, you know, we've seen some reluctance, uh, you know, Germany, for example, saying, OK, well, we're not going to close all three nuclear plants uh, we'll keep two of them open uh, till April. 
you know, I mean, just sort of an inkling of sort of realism there. But it seems to me we've got a long way to go before there's uh, even an appreciation. There's an actual emergency going on. So it's worse than that, Michael. Um, what they're proposing is that they will close one permanently on December 31st. They will close the other two on December yeah. 31st. But they will keep close them in a way that maintains the optionality to bring them back online um, at least until, you know, the end of April, which is essentially... Um, it's just it's nonsense. Let's just call it what it is. Even Governor Gavin Newsom in California has realized that it probably would be a good idea to extend his last remaining nuclear power plant in the state, Diablo Canyon, um, at least through 2030. Um, and, and that was probably front running what he knew to be the rolling blackout crisis that is about to uh, engulf the state today. Um, how stupid would it look? Um, for, for Newsom to be um, insisting that 10% of the electricity in the state be taken offline um, when the state is in the midst of a rolling blackout crisis because of the um, summer heat wave. Um, and so even Gazim, Gavin Newsom can see it. Um, so Germany is to the left of, of the California Democrats, uh, if that gives you a sort of a sense of where they would lie on the, on the political spectrum. Well, and now we've got, of course, uh, you know, the big news uh, that you guys reported on and, and did some stuff on was, you know, uh, when they start talking about capping Russian energy prices, immediately Russia responds, as, as uh, you guys at Doomberg predicted, but says, OK, well, then we're not going to sell you any oil. And uh, I, I just look at this kind of stuff where you get the G7, you know, and that includes Canada, you know, U.S., of course, and, you know, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, U.K., saying we're going to cap energy prices, the absurdity of that. And I thought maybe I'd get you just to sort of elaborate a little bit. I mean, I looked at that and uh, I needed a neck brace because my head was shaking so hard. It's, it's, we described it as perhaps the, the least serious slash most foolish policy proposal that we've ever come across. Um, in their delusion, the G7 leaders think they can dictate to three to four billion of the world's population uh, what they should pay for property that does not belong to the G7. Um, as though Justin Trudeau, who we've been very critical of, as I'm sure you know, um, can tell India what it should pay for Russian oil um, or tell China what it should pay for Russian oil. And by the way, it, it screams of a complete and total lack of relevant experience in the commodity sector, because all this is going to do is enrich the uh, black market participants and the traders, and that oil is going to find its way to the market um, that it's laughable to think that the G7 leaders have convinced themselves that because they currently hold a relative monopoly on insurance and the insurance of maritime seagoing vessels, that somehow this will prevent the world from getting its much needed oil, as though India and China and Russia can't just insure these vessels themselves. Um, if you think insurance is more of a moat than the jewels needed to power your society uh, and to maintain social order, you're just you're deluding yourself. Um, it, it's obscene. It's it's a joke. It lays bare the sort of uh, intellectual bankruptcy of the G7, the slate of G7 leaders that we have right now. You know, we kind of were a little hard on Janet Yellen in our last piece, um, you know, Europe on the brink. Yeah, but she's only ever worked at the Fed or uh, in a university uh, in a brief uh, stint at a think tank. I mean, what does she know? about how the world really works. Uh, we said, you know, uh, what does she know about the real world, a place she surely has never visited? Um, <laughs> this, this, this can only have come uh, from a cocktail party. Uh, it's that unserious. Like um, our geopolitical enemies are laughing at us. And by the way, when we, when we write to critique these policies, 
Um, we don't do so um, to mock our leaders. We do so to try and um, inform them that there's a better path forward. Um, I, I, we have, as you can imagine, hundreds of contacts in the commodity sector, given our decades of experience in the space. And uh, we can't find one who understands how this uh, price cap is meant to work in practice. Uh, it's, it's laughed at. Um, people roll their eyes. Um, these are the same people that these governments are counting on to invest uh, in new production. And they look at this unserious slate of, uh, of uh, leaders who were born on third base and thought they hit a triple like Trudeau. Um, and uh, they just shake their heads uh, like, yeah, we're not going to risk billions of dollars to bail you out of a political problem that you solved, uh, that you created, sorry. Um, and so, yeah, it's just obscene. It, it's literally the most absurd thing we've ever seen. Um, it's predestined to fail, and um, it, it, it has real consequences. It, it makes us look unserious. It reminds me of the same kind of miscalculation with the initial uh, implementation of the sanctions, where, I mean, I, and I can, I'm proud to say we talked about it immediately. First of all, sanctions have never caused regime change that I could find. You know, uh, Cuba would have 19 different leaders by now if that had worked. Uh, but it was more than that. It's like I, I've lived in India. So I thought, are you kidding me? Giving them a choice between uh, no energy. So there's no development. It's the same mistake that uh, they've made at the uh, climate fests, you know, completely ignoring the different states of the world. And they're not going to take Russian oil. I mean, that was just one example. It's like the West doesn't control the world uh, consumption or the world demand. And I see this again. It's just sort of this delusion of, about their le relative level of power. Well, and we were very early with the same conclusion. Um, and I think anybody with five minutes worth of experience in the commodity sector knows that you cannot reduce um, your competitors' revenue by trying to take their volume off the market, especially when they are a major swing producer um, in the export markets like Russia. Um, the price elasticity of demand of commodities is such that in our wildest dreams, if we were as successful as the, as the sanctions hoped to be, let's just do a thought experiment. We take 50% of Russia's oil off of the international markets. We, we, we do a naval blockade. We blow up some export terminals. We, we you pick your favorite. If we took half of his volume off of the international markets, the price of oil would weigh more than double. And he would end up with more revenue on the 50% of his volume remaining than he uh, would have gotten if we just left it, let it go to the market. And so um, the only way to hurt somebody's revenue, which is what we did, by the way, when we had the first Gulf War, is you flood the market with energy. This inelasticity works both ways. And so if there is a slight excess of product, the price collapses. That's how you hurt his revenue. You drill, baby, drill. Trudeau commits to making LNG export terminals. We approve the Keystone Pipeline. We uh, fast track federal permits to extract more oil and gas. Um, we do what the prime minister of the UK did this morning. You at least signal that this is what you intend to do. You take the the risk premium out of the market. There's a huge risk premium, at least there was, um, in the oil market, still exists in the natural gas market, uh, especially for LNG exports. Um, if we just jawboned it in the right way, as opposed to thinking that we could somehow um, hurt his revenue by stinting his volume, it's just, it, it, it's so nonsensical that it, it defies belief that uh, we couldn't get anybody with more qualifications than what we have uh, in the ears of the people of power.
Yeah, and I agree completely that what you're saying about uh, the UK, you know, re recent announcement, at least it's the first time somebody was talking about supply, like opening up North Sea oil. You watch the opposite reaction in the States. I mean, the climate agenda still dominates. They don't want to be seen to increasing, uh, you know, oil or, or natural gas production. And then you've got this ludicrousness. They've learned nothing about this, at least the timetable. I mean, I don't even want to get into the big debate about renewables. And of course, they need a lot of fossil fuels to get that transition. But it's also the timetable's ridiculous. And it's like they've learned nothing. Yeah, it, it really it really is um, quite something. You know, I, I, I will say um, the, the markets are forward looking and um, the recent price action uh, in Europe coming off of that blow off top, uh, I think has caused a real panic in the capitals around Europe. I think um, the sort of rolling bailouts of the electricity producers, um, it was a real eye opener about how fast all of these things could uh, unravel. Um, and um, there was also a lot of stress on the European banks. I mean, let's, let's be clear who are the counterparties on all of these margin calls um, some estimates as high as $1.5 trillion. Um, you know, the counterparties to these margin calls are the banks and the banks don't have 1.5 trillion of equity, I can assure you. Um, and so we were looking at a, a very close analogy to, um, the global financial crisis. And, uh, and we were reminded of, um, the time where, um, you know, the, the U S treasury committed to not bailing out any banks and in, um, Hank Paulson committed to not bailing out any banks uh, in New York on a, on a Sunday, um, I think Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy on a Monday morning, and by Thursday they were bank uh, they were bailing out AIG um, to save the rest of the banks on Wall Street because the contagion was that quick. Um, this is a real serious crisis in Europe. Um, by the way, like people like oh they're going to make it through the winter, and and you're being too alarmist. Uh, well, we we've been writing about this for a year, and yes, we expect that most citizens in Europe will survive the winter. Let's be clear. Uh, but this does not mean there will not be extraordinary economic wreckage, massive recession, um, businesses, you know, shutting their doors. Like this is real harm to real people. Um, the elites in Brussels uh, might do just fine. Their heat will stay on. Um, but this is a real serious issue. And I think last weekend's um, sort of eruption uh, that didn't really make the news to the extent that it probably should have um, really opened the eyes of some of the leaders in Europe. And, uh, and I think uh, the prime minister's statement today is, as we have mentioned many times, um, the first positive sign in that regard. Uh, it's interesting, the financial repercussions, and I'm glad you're bringing it up, but people should appreciate the, the banking problem that this will create. And plus the bailouts. I mean, what, Finland at 10 billion, I think it was, uh, you know, that in government in UK, they are talking about $130 billion package, another 40 billion for small business. I mean, that list, I can just keep talking here. You know, Sweden, 23 billion. Everybody's doing this. Well, of course, that money doesn't exist. They're just literally creating it. And I'm thinking of the long-term viability or, or repercussions, let's say, uh, on the euro to start with, but the banking system globally. It's, I'm just pointing out that the ripple effect of this stuff goes beyond I can't heat my home. Yes, of course. And, um, and we would argue that the catastrophe that we have been warning about is already here. Um, mm. Will it get worse from here or not? Perhaps. Um, but um, when you're talking about uh, in the UK... 5% of GDP as a bailout. I mean, that's a big number. I mean, it's unthinkable, um, much bigger than the bazooka that Hank Paulson had to um, bring to bear in the global financial crisis to uh, snuff out that um, run on the bank. Um, this, is, this is a big deal. Um, and it already has occurred. 
it was predictable. We predicted it. You predicted it. Many predicted it. Um, the <clears throat> same framework that we use to predict it should be the framework that we use to lead ourselves out of it uh, because it's ultimately just physics. Like um, there's no denying that um, the number of joules that you can harness dictates the integrated standard of living of your society. Um, the more energy you get to waste, the higher your standard of living. Um, if we're going to accept that um, as an axiom, society should um, try to minimize the number of, uh, of CO2 emissions we're putting into the atmosphere, um, we should not forget the numerator, which is the standard of living we would like to uh, impart for our citizens um, with such a constraint. Um, and, and that standard of living um, must go through jewels. Um, we must produce energy, we must harness power, uh, nuclear energy, um, some fossil fuels in the mix, um, perhaps some renewables. We are still believers that we should be investing in solar for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, uh, it's very clear that we are unserious if we think that we can just eliminate fossil fuels without going through the path of massive economic devastation for the median um, citizens uh, all over the world. Uh, let me come to two things, and I do want to get on to food in a second and, and uh, that whole area. Because you guys have been, uh, I call it pioneering in that work, warning of the dangers, and then the dangers became readily apparent. Uh, but I want to just uh, talk one about nuclear and get to that just for a second. And, you know, if you're going to close your eyes, uh, do you see a much more significant presence, maybe not in North America, but I mean, I'm talking about the developments we've seen in other parts of the world, including China, India, uh, you know, Korea, the list goes on. Yeah, so China's, uh, you know, we like to say, watch what China does, not what they say. So while they're happy to sell us their monopolies uh, around solar and, and wind um, for our use, um, they are rapidly building out some 150 nuclear reactors while also adding some, you know, 270 gigawatts of coal power in the next few years, which is unthinkable. Um, they're going for baseload power because they understand physics. And they actually don't care about global warming. It's very clear. Um, John Kerry is not going to influence how many coal plants uh, China decides to build in the next few years. Um, and so China is uh, racing towards nuclear and coal. We would point to Ontario as a, um, uh, as a as sort of an exception that proves the rule. Uh, Ontario did a very fine job of decarbonizing its grid, um, turning back on a bunch of can-do reactors. Um, some 90% of the electricity produced in Ontario today comes from carbon-free sources. Um, there is still more work to do. Um, the attempted um, infusion of intermittent solar and wind was a fiasco. Luckily, the population um, uh, you know, took, took care of that at the ballot box in both 2018 and, the, and in the most recent election. Um, but uh, Ontario proves what's possible. They are the exception that proves the rule that nullifies the anti-nuclear stance of the uh, Malthusian uh, radical environmentalists who, um, who are deeply anti-human at their core and don't like to admit it. Um, there is no path to a highly decarbonized economy that does not run right through nuclear power. Uh, and so um, the milestones that we are looking for when we talk to subscribers and our clients um, center around um, seriousness about nuclear power. Um, and even in the U.S., again, I, I would give Governor Gavin Newsom full credit for walking back from the edge and extending the life of Diablo Canyon. Um, we would now push and argue and say, if keeping it is good, wouldn't having five more of them be better? Um, and it doesn't take but five Diablo Canyons to solve California's electricity crisis for a generation. 
five Diablo Canyons is what? Let's let's round up and call it $25 billion. Um, politicians in DC won't bend over and pick up $25 billion if it was lying on the sidewalk. This is a de minimis amount of money compared to how much we're wasting. Um, so this is clearly a choice. It's a political choice. Uh, the grift of ESG is irresistible and the practicality of, of actually solving the problem uh, is not yet um, high on the radar of politicians. You know, it's interesting that uh, obviously so much of this is, is government directly related to government policy, whether it's uh, saying in Germany, no fossil fuels, uh, so only backup power, uh, no nuclear at that point, but no backup power for the renewables. So we have to go to Russia to have the gas, uh, you know, right around. I mean, we could keep going on and on how directly related it is. But now I want to, you know, beyond that, they make choices today that guarantees we're not solving the problem. I mean, uh, you know, there's enough we could frack in Europe if they wanted to, you know, and get natural gas. As you say, uh, we could institute nuclear power in, uh, you know, many areas uh, of the world, but especially, as you say, in the U.S. and in, in uh, Europe. It's amazing that I'm just saying that they're actually making choices that make this worse. Yeah, um, but I don't believe they believe they're making things worse. So this is a sort of a point of differentiation between us and some people who think this is sort of... Um, all on purpose uh, and part of some conspiracy of the um, World Economic Forum, for example. Um, we, we acknowledge that those people exist and some of them may in fact be, you know, diabolical, um, but we still want to believe in um, and, and there's insufficient evidence to reject the hypothesis that this is, this is all born out of incompetence. Um, that explains the behavior in our view and we don't want to live in a world where our leaders actually want less humans on the earth. Um, and so um, this, this, this literally comes from a multi-decade separation of, you know, when 98% when of the population worked on the farm, you had a visceral understanding of where food came from. Um, now less than 2% of the population works on the farm. And um, unfortunately, many in the newest generations think that food comes when you click a few buttons on a phone. Um, and, and during times of abundance, um, you can get away with such thinking, but not during times of shortages like we find ourselves today. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the view. And I think ultimately um, nothing um, sharpens the mind like a good crisis. Well, when speaking of food, they're certainly going to get a sharp mind then. And one of the things you guys wrote about um, a year ago, and 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 before that, had commented on, but uh, you know, some excellent pieces a year ago talking about the relationships. Uh, and that's one of the things that Doomberg does so well is understanding the chemical uh, relationships uh, beyond that. And that's what I thought uh, was so needed in the discussion: uh, natural gas, ammonia, urea, oh, fertilizer. Again, uh, Ala, your coal example earlier, it was like this comes as a shock that if we say no to natural gas, we're saying no to nitrogen-based fertilizer. Yeah. So one of our advantages is, is our experience in industry. And um, we have sort of a molecular map of how the economy actually works. Um, and um, the, one of the reasons we started Doomberg was when I was an executive in industry, um, one of the differentiating features that drove um, my career was an ability to distill complexity into um, a form that non-scientists could understand uh, and understand in a way that could help them decide whether they should write a check to invest or to pass. And so um, we, much of the value we provided um, our non-scientific leaders uh, in the commodity sector was knowing when to pass. You know, something came across 
the desk and it just it just you know um, defied the laws of physics and it and immediately just sort of pops off the page as a as a promote yeah pass on that one but when something is real or when something has consequences two and three steps um, down the road our ability to articulate that uh, was highly valued and we translated that skill uh, into the creation of Doomberg and so um, it's not just about knowing how these things um, interconnect it's about telling the story in a way that the non-scientists can find accessible. Um, and when you do that, uh, it really resonates with people because people like to learn. Um, they like to know the truth. Um, and that's where I think the key brand ambition for Doomberg um, has really paid off for us and explains our growth. You know, our, our objective is that when you, Michael, get an email from Doomberg, the gut feeling we induce in you is, ooh, I get to read that. Um, and, and to the extent we've been able to achieve that, we think it's because we take the time to explain uh, to the non-scientific audience uh, the core elements of a scientific dilemma uh, in a way that is totally accessible to them. Well, and I would say that's where you, you've, you've abs if that was a goal, you've succeeded in that goal. And I think that was uh, missing in the discussion about fertilizer, for example, or about, uh, you know, when you say no to natural gas, what are you actually saying no to, you know, down the road? And as you pointed out uh, early on, you're saying no to nitrogen-based fertilizer because you're saying no to ammonia. That's the kind of stuff that's so important. You also did a recent piece, uh, sorry, off the top of my head, you know, talking about the importance of uh, the refinery process and diesel and the impact on AdBlue, but then the impact on trucking, et, et cetera. Very understandable as your goal was, but also it really explained the significance there. And, uh, you know, everyone's allowed to have their issues, but when I consider millions of the people in the world who are on the precipice of starvation and then to consciously make policy that is going to make that worse you know I, again others can say i don't care about that i happen to care about that and that's why i thought the work that you were doing was so valuable and uh i don't see much change there i mean i i'm not sitting here optimistically looking at the food situation as dramatically improving uh for so many people living throughout the globe yeah, we, we, we sort of call this um, interconnecting otherwise unrelated sectors. So um, as you mentioned, AdBlue, which is needed to run the diesel trucks, which is needed to move all of the goods and services uh, around our economy. AdBlue is basically just a solid form of ammonia, which is urea. Um, so we have connected the fertilizer market to um, the complex logistics of our supply chain. Um, when we burn ethanol um, in our automobiles, a 10% additive, um, we are connecting the price of corn to the um, refining utilization rates you know, in the oil and gas sector. When we um, mandate the use of so-called renewable diesel, you are directly connecting the price of soybeans, which is predominantly used in animal feed, so you're connecting the price of beef to the price of diesel. Um, and what happens in such circumstances as these markets become um, more interconnected, um, these uh, uh, interconnected, in, interconnection points become tunnels through which contagion in one market um, bleeds into the other. Um, and this is all sort of out of this, what we think is a fallacy, which is anything that is renewable is quote unquote good. Um, of all of the ESG sort of, um, pillars, renewable carbon content is the least uh, impactful on the underlying objective, which is to sort of preserve as much of nature as we can and to make Earth as habitable as possible for 
humans and animals and nature alike, um, renewable carbon content is is the, is among the silliest um, of, of of the pillars of the ESG movement. And and so um, just just because you can make a drop in diesel substitute from soybeans does not mean that you should. But because renewable is good, um, all negative consequences of that are ignored, and the positive attributes of it are blown out of all proportion. Um, and so that's just one example of the type of writing that we do. But um, and, and people don't realize it, it comes as a shock to people uh, when you sort of lay this out. So that that's sort of the, the fun part of it is when people learn something, they're willing to commit to learning more. And um, those are the types of people we've been able to convert into subscribers. Well, I, I let me put this in though to a plug here, because uh, that's the reason I became a subscriber. And I don't say that lightly. I read way too much. I don't, uh, you have to know, Doomberg, I have no life. You know, I just read and research. I'm the <laughs> dullest guy around. But uh, again, it was exactly that kind of uh, ability that you write about that makes those connections, that you go further down the road. The anticipation is, is great. The looking forward is great. But then making those connections. And as I say, I can give you lots of examples of what you've done. Uh, but they're of such significance, though, at this point. I mean, we're talking about global future here. And as I say, I'm really worried about food, worried about fertilizer, worried about, you know, simple things like that you've written about. But, you know, uh, if you're in the third world, you pay cash for your fertilizer. There's no credit facility sitting there that maybe I could expand. So presto, and as I say, having lived in India, uh, you know, that therefore I don't use fertilizer. Therefore, my crop yield dropped as they've the disastrous examples in Sri Lanka where we have measurable examples of, of switching out. And uh, so I'm just saying that's why I became a subscriber. It's, it's that understanding of the interconnectedness and the sort of chemical processes that go that we're, uh, that you guys made understandable. So I, uh, I, as I say, I don't say that lightly when I say I subscribe to something. Um, I really appreciate it, yeah. Yeah, but it, it, it's great stuff. So let's look forward for a second here. Uh, and I know... You guys, uh, you know, advise corporations, obviously do stuff for individuals. You don't make specific investment re uh, recommendations, but maybe on the broad brush, looking at, uh, you know, it seems to me that natural gas has a real future, <laughs> if you know what I mean, or at least companies that produce it and maybe to a lesser extent, the infrastructure around it, but the companies that produce it, uh, because it would seem to me that we're going to get a more global market in natural gas, not just sort of local as we have today, but as we improve LNG, as we have the export facilities to do that and uh, and receive it, uh, I see sort of a, an upward movement in natural gas. I mean, and correct me if you don't agree, please. Yeah, especially if you're talking Canadian natural gas uh, yeah. versus, you know, U.S. natural gas. So Canadian natural gas is stranded right now. Um, it has no, no offtake, no place to put it. Because as you know, and as we've explained, um, the handling of natural gas is its big Achilles heel uh, because it is a gas. And, um, and so we envision in the long run, um, thermodynamically, there must exist an equilibrium state where the price of natural gas all around the world trades within a band. And that band, the thickness of that band is the logistics costs of moving it around. Um, what does that mean? That means that um, in the long run, Canadian and, and U.S. natural gas needs to trade much higher. Um, and um, European and, and, and Asian natural gas needs to trade much lower. Um, it cannot be that the same thing sells for a tenfold difference in price in different parts of the world indefinitely. The forces of arbitrage are powerful. 
um, the barriers to collapse that arbitrage are large, um, but they are doable. They're, they require no technical innovations. And so there will be regions of the world that invest in the technology needed um, in, to, to invest in the deployment of the pre-existing technology um, that is needed to close that arbitrage. You can't have natural gas in Canada at $5 per million BTU and natural gas in Europe swinging between $60 and $100 per million BTU uh, indefinitely. Um, and for Trudeau to say he cannot conceive of a business case for the construction of LNG export terminals, um, I, I think retweeted. And again, full disclosure, um, we are amongst Trudeau's harshest critics. <laughs> um, I could think of a person, I can't think of a person less qualified to judge uh, the, the suitability of a business case than, than Justin Trudeau. Um, and his uh, comments in this regard are, are proof positive uh, that our assessment is correct. So yeah, in the long run, uh, we are bullish. The, um, the sort of the, the bid end of the natural gas arbitrage and bears the ask end of that spread. Uh, it's just just uh, interesting that uh, one of the shocking stats I've done uh, talks about we had five LNG uh, proposals on the East Coast. One was canceled uh, two weeks before the invasion. We had 13 canceled on the uh, West Coast. Uh, yeah, talk about business opportunity lost, especially for the future. And that's my point is that, not you know, going forward, our, our gas, like much of our oil, is held hostage to one market. And uh, the amount of money that has been foregone uh, in eco uh, economic growth and uh, government revenues too, it's just been ast astronomical. We're, yeah. we're, number, we're number one <laughs> you know, on that scale. Uh, look, let's, let's be very clear, whether it's Coke and coal, natural gas, oil, agricultural goods, fertilizer, Canada has the potential to be an energy superpower. And we have argued forcefully on Twitter spaces where some of the sort of more um, deeper critics of Canada and Canada is a bankrupt country. And so Canada is amongst the richest countries on the planet. It's relatively small population. Uh, let's put it this way. If you put Alberta out to bid on the open market, um, you would get many, many trillions of dollars um, to buy Alberta. Um, Canada is a deeply wealthy place with exceptional institutions unbelievable education system, very strong social fabric and social network. Um, even Justin Trudeau won't be able to irreparably ruin Canada. Uh, so if you pushed us, uh, we are deeply bullish on the medium and long-term prospects for Canada. Um, but Canada is missing an extraordinary, an extraordinary opportunity, uh, uh, an extraordinary opportunity to, to help abate a crisis while simultaneously securing, um, you know, it, its financial strength uh, for a generation, um, positioning the next generation of Canadians, um, you know, even nuclear power um, can do the whole infrastructure. Canada has everything it needs. And that's the type of thing that can't be ruined by one person. So, um, you know, deep down, I'm deeply optimistic on Canada. Well, that's a great place to end off. But I want to also make sure everyone understands all you have to do is go to Doomberg. D O O M Berg B E R G dot substack dot com Doomberg dot substack dot com or go to uh, Doomberg T put the T on the end for Twitter Doomberg T uh, for Twitter uh, daily updates many times uh, throughout the week and uh, Doomberg I got to say thank you and uh, just because uh, you know just to put you on the spot we got to uh, visit again in the near future 
anytime. It was a real pleasure, Michael, and uh, congrats on the success of your show, and, and it was a real pleasure. Great stuff. Thank you. I mean, obviously, one of the big stories this week has to be what is happening on the interest rate front, but not just in Canada. I mean, the projections now for what's going on in the States, uh, what we just saw in Europe, uh, I guess it was on Thursday, we saw it in Europe with a three-quarter point rise. I mean, my gosh, talk about about face. I wanted to bring Rob Levy in now uh, and, and discuss it. I mean, Rob, obviously in a world awash with debt, whether we're talking individually, corporately, or nationally, uh, man, when you get this kind of aggressive jumps in interest rate, I mean, I had said quite a while ago, their goal was to shock the system. Well, I think the shock's starting to come through. It's starting to come through, and the reaction is almost how much more of this can we take? Unbelievable. We saw with the Bank of Canada, matched expectations, but they did it again this week, Mike, raising interest rates by 75 basis points. And definitively, the Bank of Canada, also compared to other Western central banks around the world, they're out in front. They've raised rates by 300 basis points this year. That's ahead, you know, second place of the Fed at 225 basis points, but they'll catch up. But also uh, the Royal Bank of Australia and New Zealand, too. So the Bank of Canada is leading the charge. Well, you're right. Central, that's an important point. Central banks around the world. Um, you know, I, I'm going to talk to Ozzy about the immediate impact on real estate. We've, we've seen it, but I mean, I'll talk about stress tests and stuff like that. But I think, you know, it's not so much the 75 basis points. It's we came from 25 or, you know, 0.25, sorry, a quarter of a percent February 28th, up 13 times more, 1300%. And again, I guess that's what they're trying to do is shock the system, but they're saying more to come. They're saying more to come, and I think that's the really interesting point, because whether or not interest rates go higher from here, their key messaging is they want people to think no matter what that interest rates are going higher from here. And that's where a lot of the discussion has been, is we knew it was going to be a steep path to higher interest rates, but where's the terminal rate going to be? Where are rates going to be at the end of this cycle? And some suggested, because the Bank of Canada had previously mentioned three and a quarter percent is in the realm of what they consider restrictive. So you begin to see that slowing impact on the economy. But they even mentioned in the final note of their final paragraph of their policy statement, given the level of inflation, interest rates will still move higher from here. So, you know, whether it happens again in October and, you know, people are already saying 25, 50 basis points, perhaps, they still want you to think interest rates are still going to move higher from here. Well, interesting. I, I had a peek at a TD Economics report saying, yeah, they still thought that this wasn't going to get it done at all. So, you know, now that domestic forces, I mean, I saw some of the public sector uh, union contracts, so wage increases are coming that will be added to the inflation. There is good news on one side, or I shouldn't say it's good news, but on the inflation measurement side is that, you know, like, let's say we keep oil in about the $80 range here. Well, that's where it was last October you know, well, well yeah. in advance of the invasion. So uh, the way they measure inflation, that'll show up as zero. So that sort of energy, um, energy component will now be muted. Uh, and again, just a, a quick reminder that inflation measures the rate of change of price increases. It does not tell you what the price is. And yeah. disinflation is just that rate of increase has slowed. That's why it killed me, by the way, Rob, when they kept talking peak inflation. I'm going... Who cares? It was eight and now it's seven. 
prices are still going up 7%. You know, yeah, deflation yeah. is pr- measuring the growth down. But uh, no, we, we're still not out of the woods. But I can see the inflation number improving because the energy side will improve because we're comparing it to much higher prices from a year earlier. Exactly right, Mike. And you know, it's interesting too because they've really, as you said, they they've laid out their goalposts for uh, where they think what's a focus to the Bank of Canada in order to get inflation tamer level that they're comfortable with, so they ease off the rate hikes. Uh, but you know, even in the bank's messaging in their report, and Carolyn Rogers, the deputy governor, the day after speaking to an audience, they talk about a couple key areas of the Canadian economy that still give people a level of optimism. And then you look at that optimism and you say, okay, of course, they're still going to keep moving ahead with interest rates. Because even though we missed on in terms of second quarter GDP numbers in Canada in the most recent quarter, and they're below the Bank of Canada's estimates, uh, the fact of the matter was, it still showed signs of a relatively strong consumer. So consumers are going to keep spending. Everybody's talking about that. The Canadian bank CEOs were talking at a Bank of Nova Scotia conference this week and still have optimism for the soft landing because of the strength of the Canadian consumer. And maybe that's a good thing. But on the other side of that, too, if people still have money to spend, they're still getting their raises. That just puts some added pressure on inflation into the fall and, and could prompt the Canada, Bank of Canada's hand as we go further and further into this year. Yeah, I think that's what the TD Bank was sort of alluding to, that it'll be more dr- domestically driven at this point for exactly the reasons you've just alluded to. You know, but but part of that, I mean, let's come back, is people change behavior when prices change. One of the oldest rules of economics that is ignored by our politicians regularly. I'm saying this, Rob, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as they raise prices on something or raise taxes, they pretend there's no repercussions. I mean, you know, yeah. talk about yeah. putting a, pushing one of my buttons. But in this case... Some of the changes are we're looking at credit card debt. We're looking at people not adjusting their actual spending when prices went up. They just borrowed more to afford it. And it reminds me that, you know, when you have these kind of movements, different variables react in different time frames. So, yeah, the consumer hasn't slowed down, uh, particularly because of the rising prices. But maybe that's to come. I mean, there's just all of this complexity that's mixed into this uh, formula for the Bank of Canada. Yeah, exactly right. And when they talk about interest rate rises, and typically that, as you said, that reaction time, when do we as consumers adjust our behavior? And they suggest, you know, sometimes a lag of six to nine months. Perhaps what makes this time a little bit different, and we've seen it, as you said, sort of in some areas of the economy, like like housing, where things have sort of stalled off a little bit, is the steepness of the curve. But yeah, if we think we're going to see the worst of it right now in the reaction to higher interest rates, I, I think you're also hinting, maybe you're hinting at it, but I'm saying it, that that's a different story. Yeah, because as you said, we're going to start to feel the pinch and the impact of the higher prices in the months ahead and the, and the yeah, more so- restrictive interest rates. Yeah, so we got housing has already been hit, but sometimes consumer spending. We've got the wage part coming in. Uh, I, I, the other thing is, I, I have to point out, there's two things, rather. The Bank of Canada wants to slow the economy. That's the goal. You know, people are sort of shocked when we get some of the numbers. No, they want it to slow down. They want your house price down. They want your stock price down because then we feel poorer and finally slow down our spending. So that's one thing uh, to be crystal clear on. Uh, and the other is that, uh, I look at the, the rate of change. Is That's what it's all about. It's not the ultimate number. We've been, at, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we had interest rates, you know, 
I remember my first mortgage under 10% and thought it was hallelujah, brother. You know, are you kidding me? So it's not that. It's the rate of change and our perceptions about rat. That's why they spend so much time talking about your inflation perception, because they don't want us to think inflation's going up and up, because that changes a lot of things too. I agree with you on those, Mike, and I'd add a third one to the list, and I know it's one you've documented, is the fact that these guys have lost a lot of credibility and have very little credibility, and they want that back, and nobody wants to make the mistake on inflation and letting their foot off the gas too easy and letting inflation get out of control, and I think these guys are on a serious bid to get their credibility back, so they want to see inflation come down, and they don't mind that it comes at the cost of slowing economic growth, especially when they highlight the fact that we've been above trend for some years now. They want to see a period of moderation. Yeah, I'm, smi- I'm smiling thinking they got a lot of work if they want my credibility or my view on them back. Well, I mean, come on. Why, why did we have interest rates move 1,300% in six months? Because they had got it wrong all the way up to that. They yeah. should have been uh, you know, tightening way in advance. And so, yeah, I'm just laughing, thinking, yeah, they were telling it was transitory, I think right through November of last yeah. year. And I know, I know on this show... Uh, we had been doing stuff for at least eight months at that point. You know that? Are you kidding? It's you know, and, and anticipating the energy market and chronicling it too. But I'm just saying, yeah, they got a lot more work to do on the credibility front when it comes to me and money talks. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time. Great stuff. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the remarkable stat of the week. Well, of course, as everyone appreciates, Queen Elizabeth passed away Thursday as the longest standing monarch in British history. I think it's impossible to properly sum up such a remarkable life, so I'm not going to try. I'm sure all of us have our own description. I mean, words like dignity, integrity, courage, uh, grace, public service, I think immediately come to mind, which I think is translated into a global affection for Her Majesty that's unrivaled in British history. That's why this week I'm not doing a shocking stat of the week. Instead, I'm renaming it the remarkable stats of the week because her reign has been nothing short of remarkable. I think about this, you know, during World War II, and I think she was 18, 19 years old, she enrolled in the auxiliary territorial service and she trained as a driver and a mechanic for the British army. But then it was what, something just over six years later at the age of 25, she became queen of England. And what's remarkable though, she worked with 15 British prime ministers. I mean, Winston Churchill to start off with. Actually, she did twice, uh, including she had Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair. And just a few days ago, she greeted the new prime minister, Liz Truss. She met five popes. There were 12 Canadian prime ministers. I mean, she started with John Diefenbaker, then to Pierre Trudeau, to Joe Clark, then back to Pierre Trudeau. I mean, of course, there's Brian Mulroney, Kim Campbell, Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau. You know, I remember this. uh, Well, I'm sure you do too. Remember the opening ceremonies of the London Olympics in 2012 with Daniel Craig as James Bond and the Queen? I know, just reminding me what a good sport, what a sense of humor she had. I mean, look at the celebrations, her silver, her golden, and her diamond uh, jubilees, this this year's platinum jubilees. Come on, remarkable milestones. As I said, I'm not even going to attempt to do justice to the profound influence she's had. For many, she displayed the absolute epitome of leadership. But, you know, one of my first memories, though, goes back to 1970. And, uh, you know, she was in Australia and she caused a heck of a stir because she broke with centuries of tradition and walked about the crowd. 
greeted children and adults, and her connection with the public just continued to grow. I think for most, there's a profound sense of loss with her passing. And I think it's one of those occasions where it's very safe to say, we will not see her like again. Well, this worked out well. I mean, Ozzy Jurek's busy at his conference here, of course. They've got a sold-out audience, but uh, we also have a sold-out audience because of the interest rate change. So, Ozzy, first of all, I appreciate, seriously, I know you're very busy today. I appreciate you getting the time in with us here. And I want to talk about a couple of things with that rate rise. And the first thing is something that you've been chatting about, but we're now getting serious. If you know what I mean, like going from a quarter to say even 2% may not be as serious, but it's that rate of change. As you said, it was the rate of change that was going to be shocking. It wasn't going to be the actual number, you know, uh, but now we've got, you know, what a prime rate at 5.45%. It was 2.45, six months ago. The one I want to talk about though, is, as I say, you put it on our radar is look what's happened to the stress test. I mean, this has got to be preventing some people from qualifying for a mortgage when you talk about rates like this. No question. When you take a look at the, if, even if you took a one-year fixed, it's now 4.5%, so plus 2%, which the stress test is everything plus 2%, is now 6.5%. But the most variable mortgages that people used to take, they're still available at about 0.3 below the rate, but that's 545 Long story short, that comes to 7.15 for the stress test. And any fixed rate now, the lowest we can get, and this we're talking the lowest, there are quite a few rates that are higher, at 5.4% plus 2 is now 7.4%. Well, that'll knock out the borrowing power, in my view, by 20% of all the, all the, all the, all the borrowing power. Yeah, simply people won't qualify anymore, you know, because the stress test means if rates were at 7.15 or as you say on the, you know, the fixed at 7.39, and that's the stress test, if they were actually there, could you make the payments? So a lot of people are going to fall off the wayside, as you say, maybe as much as 20%, maybe 25%. I mean, who knows? But here's something else that I, uh, that I want to chat about is uh, a little bit confusing that you could have a variable rate mortgage but your payments aren't affected, uh, like what you pay the bank isn't affected by the rise in rates. Can you explain that a little bit and the significance too? Well, what they call the variable rate mortgage um, could be that the interest rates go up. Don't worry about it. The payment stays the same. And that was fine for the longest period of time because what happens is the bank just takes more and more of your money and puts it into the interest rather than into producing the capital that you have, the equity. So before it was, you know, as everything was normal, you had an 80% mortgage, you made your monthly payments and they were fixed, even though the rates might go up. But now that they're going up so much and so fast, there comes such a thing called the trigger point. And the trigger point occurs when you're no longer paying down any of the principal, it's now all interest. And then that comes to a point where that trigger point goes over the 80% of the mortgage that you already did and then your payments will go up. And Michael, that'll affect thousands of people. They all feel comfortable about my rate is fixed. My payment is fixed. Well, they thought it will only my the length of my term is going to go up and I have to pay longer 
pay it back. But now the bank says, no, no, if it hits the trigger point over that 80%, if you put 20% down, if you put down only 10%, it's higher. There might go even as much as 100%. The point is, whoever heard about a trigger point before? Yeah, well, and also, I mean, the significance that just occurs to me as you're talking to me and explaining it to me, uh, it's all of a sudden you're not paying any principal back. You know, no, you're just paying no. interest. So you're not getting further ahead. You, you haven't made any progress. I mean, the idea was I, I borrow money for 25 years, but I pay off the mortgage in that period. And what you're describing is I'm not paying off anything. So before the trigger take is actually come, comes into effect, you probably are already at 40 years because you've continuously paid only interest, only interest, nothing down. And then before you know it, you build up that amount of such and such that it's over 80%. And now you've got to pay more. And I'm just saying that people don't realize, I mean, most average mortgages, if the average mortgage in Vancouver is a half a million or in, in Toronto, and I tell you, Mike, there's a lot more and higher out there, but that's at least $200 more per month, right? At, at least now, on top of all these increases that we've had, that's painful. And, and, and let me just move on to this, too, is that uh, obviously it's, uh, you know, we were talking earlier with Rob Levy and I was saying, well, different sectors uh, and different variables are impacted at different time frames when it comes to raising interest rates. Well, this was let off by the housing market. I mean, almost right away, we've seen a drop in sales and I can't help but think that this latest increase and as you say the stress test moving some buyers out uh i mean man we are gonna if they wanted lower sales they wanted lower prices which they do boy that's certainly gonna they're gonna get their wish well and that's the unfortunate part is that yeah the mortgage uh, sales are down across the board at 40 percent in vancouver some areas are down 50 and 60 percent over last year now it's summer it's been a hot summer in BC, we like to lay on the lake, but hey, sales are way down than ever before and prices are, are following suit. But you know, Michael, it's it's what gets me is that for me, it's I am an inflation guy for 30 years. I think inflation will be a long term, you'll be fine. But if I today want to sell and want to get the price from last year, it's not going to happen. But what were we expecting? The average house in, in, in Surrey was a million dollars two years ago. And then it went to a million nine. Do we expect that to go on forever? I mean, 900,000 in two years, are you kidding? And now it's down 400,000. We say the end of the world has arrived. Hey, it's still a half a million more than it was two years ago, right? It's normal. In the stock market, we expect these fluctuations. On the real estate market, somehow we think the end of the world has arrived. It hasn't, but it's going to be some tough months ahead. Yeah, and I, and I still look at, uh, you know, for many people, their house is in quotes, their retirement. That's their number one asset. They've borrowed money to get in. It's the biggest borrowing they'll ever do. And it's a good percentage of Canadians. You know, they debate if it's 50% or 60 or what have you. But it's just interesting. All I'm pointing out is it's interesting to have a policy that is designed to lower the price or the value of my number one asset. And I just want people to really understand that. And that comes from, again, I, I, as I chatted with Rob Levy earlier, they blew it on this one. You were talking Aussie. I remember back in January, you were really angry, I'd call it. I don't want to put emotions in your mouth, but you were frustrated, angry, whatever. You You said, goodness gracious. Should I do that with a German accent? Goodness <laughs> gracious. They should have raised rates already. They yeah. should have been raising rates into the last year. They should have definitely, and they didn't. 
That's why they got to play catch up right now. Yeah, it would have been so much easier to go a quarter point each time, but start last fall sometime. Yeah. Now this hitting us over the head with a two by four. Now you predicted it. That's sort of the only way to do it. What's coming on top of that is that every municipality is looking for money too. Every everybody talks affordability like crazy, but then what they're coming up with really boggles the mind. Let me throw Toronto just very quickly. A minute left. Throw Toronto. I mean, to me, they're my poster child for any politician standing up and saying, hey, we care about affordability. Uh, you know, look what they're doing there. Now, the development cost charge Toronto up in Toronto up 40%, 40%, adding tens of thousands to the cost of a one-bedroom house. Developers cancel homes is the headline now. And the infrastructure cost rose, but not by 40%. Unbelievable. I know you've had a busy day, busy week leading up to the big conference. Appreciate you finding time. And I'll tell people to go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Great that you're having a successful conference, Ozzy. And thank you. And if there's still a couple of tickets left, go to 1133 Hastings to the Pinnacle Harbor site. And I want to tell you uh, this, uh, Michael, I want my children to have all the things that I couldn't afford. And then I want to move in with them. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek. We'll be back. Victor Dare, great stuff, important stuff happening in Europe right now. And, and of course, in our marketplace, plus a goofy award. I love batting cleanup with Victor Adair here after a, a busy week. I mean, I talked earlier about the interest rate increases, and I'm going to start there with you, Vic, is that, you know, what I think surprises some people who are not maybe as experienced is you watch a pretty big jump you know, a three quarter percent jump. I mean, my goodness. And you see the same thing going on in Europe, which is even maybe more surprising to some people who don't follow it on a daily basis. And yet the markets didn't really uh, have some sort of huge negative sh uh, shakeout. Yeah, news is only important, really, if it's different than expectations. And certainly all of the leading economists in Canada were expecting uh, a three-quarter point increase from the Bank of Canada this week. I think that had been well telegraphed uh, by the bank. So, yeah, it, it was just almost a non-event, as we used to say. It, it kind of came and went. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously for an individual who just saw their prime rate loan go up three quarters of a percent, you know, the banks don't do that in advance, but the markets do operate. And if people think about it, when you buy a stock or something like that or a commodity, uh, chances are you're anticipating it goes up. You know what I mean? That's the whole nature of the game. So I think your point's very well taken. But I want to talk about something else that uh, for the last couple of weeks, as you said, you know, these are the dog days of August, you know, and nothing's really happening. The volumes drop, et cetera. But you were expecting some change in, in direction once everybody kind of got back to work. And so what did we see this past week in that regard? Well, we did see a real reversal, Mike. And, you know, one of my favorite questions is how much is already in the price? And of course, that's the big puzzle. You know, you could be bullish on something but you're the last guy to read the newspaper, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's already in the price. Um, the markets, just in, in broad strokes here, I thought the markets in late August were, were like uh, next door to having to go to the psych ward. You know, the market was really depressed. There was just bad news everywhere. My thought on Europe was, in particular, the euro currency. I thought, Gee whiz, you know, everything you read, like Europe is neck deep in problems here. 
They got a war out in the Ukraine. Their energy costs are just soaring. They're going to be having to, you know, shut down businesses. People are going to freeze and starve to death in the winter and on and on. You know, that was kind of the tone of the news. And I said to myself, well, how come the euro isn't going down? You know, what's happening? And I thought, well, the market is like right up to here with bad news. And when that happens, you know, the price has already gone in advance of where people expect things to be. So anyway, we had the U.S. dollar at hitting 20-year highs. And this week, the U.S. dollar is turning a little lower. The stock market was very depressed this week. The stock market's doing a little better. That's the sort of change that I was anticipating. Well, I think your point, though, I mean, I, I'd like everyone to stop for a second because uh, and really appreciate what you're saying here is that price acts in anticipation. So there's no uh, no debate really about maybe the degree, but the bad news coming out of Europe. But why nobody waited to act on that news. They don't wait for the collapse to come. Or, you know, if they say uh, one out of five German factories is going to close, well, they're not going to wait for them to actually close you know, to get out of that euro. So as you said, if you watch the euro price action, I mean, it just verifies what you're saying. We already had the drop based on all of the news that was out there. I just think that's such a key component uh, to understand about how markets operate is, as you say, you all, you are, you get the news, but you want to anticipate or analyze how much of that has the market already taken into account. And usually it overshoots on the upside and overshoots on the downside. Absolutely. Well, I think this is one of the keys I'm watching here. And I look at macro markets. So I'll look at currencies, commodities, stocks, and uh, and I'm trying to see, is there a relation? Like, for instance, the stock market doesn't do what it does without paying any attention to the interest rate market or the currency market and so on. So these these markets are always kind of interdependent. The the impact of a piece of news or something on may hit one market before another. But where I'm going with this is the US dollar is kind of a barometer of the sentiment in the market. And for the past couple of months, the US dollar has been in a overbought position in terms of sentiment. Uh, my good friend Ross Clark put a piece out here two weeks ago saying that for the, I think, only the third or fourth time in the last few decades, on a monthly basis, the U.S. dollar index was in an overbought, like a seriously overbought position. So like the, like the stock market with the S&P 500, the stock market there, that's a barometer of sentiment. The U.S. dollar is a barometer of sentiment. And then both of those things are turning at the same time you know, for me, that's a that's a green light special, as Johnny Miller would say. And, you know, and I jump in there. Well, I know on VictorAdare.ca, uh, you're talking a little bit about, uh, you know, at this point, maybe you're putting a toe in the water and buying the Canadian dollar. So yeah. with that in mind, how much do you think, though, of the current three quarter percent rise was already in that? Because, you know, I was I was taken, uh, you know, if you had asked me to guess, I agree that, it, you know, that sentiment was completely in the market. I mean, it was huge percentage saying we're going 100 percent of analysts said it was a 50 percent, 50 point jump, half a percent jump. But of the, like 81 percent, this is going back a full week, said, oh, no, it's three quarters. You know, so basically everyone's saying it's three quarters. We get it. But there really wasn't that much of a bump. Is it because maybe oil sentiment uh, figured out more than that? Or what do you make of that? Uh, that makes you think maybe there's a Canadian dollar turn coming, at least for the short term. 
So I'm constantly looking for the past 50 years at the Canadian dollar, and I'm trying to figure what is impacting the Canadian dollar. And, you know, there's some broad categories, certainly historically, if the commodity markets are in a bull phase, so is the Canadian dollar. Historically, if the U.S. dollar is going down against most currencies, it's going down against the Canadian dollar as well. From time to time, interest rate differentials have an impact, but lately that's not been the case. Lately, by the past couple of months, the most important impact on the Canadian dollar has come from the general strength or weakness, and in this case, strength of the U.S. dollar, and how the stock market's doing. And the stock market, the S&P, that's kind of a barometer of risk. So lately, if you would have said to me, Victor, the stock market's down, what do you think the currency, uh, the Canadian dollar's doing? I'd say, it's down. Oh, Victor, uh, the U.S. dollar is up. What do you think the Canadian dollar's doing? I'd say, it's down. You know, so those are the most important things. That's why I pay attention to these correlations. And when I see, when I look and I think, okay, I think the U.S. dollar is maybe going to turn lower. Then I say, okay, how am I, how am I going to express that? What's, the, what's my best way? And what I've done this week is I bought the Canadian dollar. I bought the Mexican peso and I've also bought gold. One of the reasons for buying gold is one of the major factors on the gold price is the U.S. dollar. And when the U.S. dollar has been soaring, gold's been struggling to go anywhere. The other major factor on gold has been real interest rates. And I think maybe real interest rates have got to an extreme as well. So maybe after nothing but bad news on the gold market, we might see some good news. And again, I want to emphasize you're a short-term trader. And this is a great opportunity, not just to remind that, but uh, you know, on every position you take, you have an exit point. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that's the key. It's not just an, an opinion that you sort of marry yourself to. You know, the market tells you, but I just want to remind people that it's shorter term. But hey, you will also have an exit point for every one of those trades. Yeah, when I say I think the U.S. dollar is going to turn here after hitting new 20-year highs, I don't mean it's going to fall to zero. I, I mean, <laughs> I just, I'm just playing a correction here. And and I'm, I'm very prepared that I'm wrong. You know, the U.S. dollar, you know, the old saying, the trend's your friend. Well, the U.S. dollar has just been trending higher since January of last year, and it's been, the, the trend's been accelerating. So, yeah, I'm just looking for what I call an extreme in sentiments, push the market too far. I'm looking for a correction. And then, you know, if the correction maintains, I'll, I'll stay up to trade. If not, you know, maybe I'll get out with a profit and look to see what to do next. Well, people can find more at victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Look at the charts there. I always enjoy doing that. And Vic, in the meantime, you go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And this comes from the theater of the absurd when it comes to COVID and guidelines, restrictions, that kind of thing. And of course, there's a huge amount of disagreement on those restrictions and what we've been following in Canada. And now we get a huge discrepancy between what Canada is doing and what other countries are doing, including the United States, who, by the way, no longer makes a distinction, according to the Center for Disease Control, between people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. If you want to travel down to the States right now, no, there's no mandates, that kind of stuff going on. Not so in Canada. And that brings me to the Goofy Award. This is because there is a marathon happening from Detroit. The Detroit Free Press Chemical Bank Marathon takes place October 14th. They applied for an exemption 
from having to show documentation and their Arrive Can app receipts. They applied. But think about this. They were rejected. This is a marathon. They're running outdoors. They're spending approximately 20 minutes on average in Canada. And still, the Canadian government said no. Our job is to keep Canadians safe at any cost. Well, you know what? They can run all they want in Canada. I feel perfectly safe. I mean, my goodness, 20 minutes. They go over a bridge and back uh, and through a tunnel, I think, at about 10 a.m. Race starts at 7 a.m. That's a short trip. That's ridiculous. And yet there we are, Canada's government saying, nope, we still want to see the Arrive Can app. Doesn't matter that you've applied for an exemption. No exemptions are given. My goodness. And I mean, that's the thing where they have to get it within 72 hours of entering Canada, that kind of stuff, and a proof of vaccination. Unbelievable. And by the way, Canada demanding that proof of vaccination has hurt the registration for this event. That's what the directors of the event say, that it has hurt our registration, but now they throw this added thing on. I mean, they're expecting something like 20,000 runners, which is a a decline. By the way, before the pandemic, they got 26,000 in 2019. But again, uh, that's Canada's cooperation. Man, I hope you feel safer. I sure don't for this ridiculous enforcement of the Arrive Can rules. That's all the time we have today. Hey, but I want to remind you of this. Before I go, just a small request. Our goal is to expand the conversation. I love that part of it. Have any opinion you want, but get the facts. So we prevent, you know, on our Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, etc. We do give you some facts, research, and perspective that maybe you're not seeing in many other places in the media. And of course, on our site, mikesmoneytalks.ca. I'm just hoping that you will help us spread the word. I think the more people know, the better it is. I mean, I forget who said it off the top of my head. It might have been Lincoln, but he said, give people the facts and democracy will be safe. Well, we want to help in that endeavor and we need your help. Uh, You know, if you know someone who listened to the radio but hasn't made the switch to the podcast, we'd appreciate if you let them know. Maybe you know somebody who hasn't even heard of us. Again, appreciate if you let them know. So if you have a chance to encourage someone to subscribe, please do. And in the meantime, hey, go out, have an absolutely terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.